You guys can be seated. Invite up my beautiful wife. Uh, we're going to co-teach today. As you can tell, nothing controversial in the text, so it should be fairly smooth. Just like marriage. That was good. So we're going to co-teach through today's text, which we've never done before, so lead with grace, please. Um, but we're excited to stand here today as we, like, teach God's Word together. Um, you know, one day I'm going to figure this out of just not saying never to God, because uh, I, I taught about a week ago, or a month ago or so, and I said, I'm never, I'm never going to do that again in this season. It's, it's a lot. And then... Uh, I, when we mapped out the Sermon on the Mount, I remember clearly saying, and this was six months ago or so at least, you know, s clearly give me anything except adultery and divorce. <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> um, but before we get started, um, I actually just want to speak real quick to singles that are in the room. Obviously, today is a marriage topic, and we recognize that many of you in here are not in a marriage currently or maybe have never been in a marriage. Um, so just please know that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we are simply just teaching what is next. And there will come a time in this church where we will teach and speak directly to you singles in the room. Um, but for now, the Sermon on the Mount has brought us to the topic of marriage. And um, though you may not be in a marriage right now, please don't throw away today's message. Um, the Spirit loves using marriage-related issues to speak directly to the intimate relationship we have with Jesus. Um, and these are tools to save for later in case marriage is in your future one day. Um, so let's jump in. <laughs> marriage. When we have said vows to one another, we have also stepped into a committed, God-ordained relationship. I heard it said, what God ordains, Satan will attack. This is crucial for us to remember. Of course, Satan will throw at us all different kinds of temptations. And my temptations are going to be different than your temptations because Satan wants to directly attack each one of us personally. When we entered into a God-ordained marriage, we would be foolish to not be ready for attack. Welcome to church. <laughs> With Jesus, it is always a matter of the heart. You see, the heart is the gateway into seeing our true selves, who we really are. It's, it's the core of our person, the core of our soul, as the Scriptures would describe it. It's the place from which decisions are truly made and behavior actually flows. And we want to remember that Jesus, as we come to these difficult Scriptures today, we want to remember that Jesus is good. Somebody say amen. He is always good, and His words are good. They're not always easy to hear, but they're good. So while Jesus is good and his word is good, we come because of that. But we also come understanding that, like, this isn't an easy text to follow. Jesus is not an easy rabbi to follow. In my home, in our home, we don't watch a lot of Christian film or TV or movies or anything like that because most of the time, the like acting or writing or name any of the things just isn't as good. Uh, the art forms in Christian culture just aren't as good as art forms in the secular culture. It's just a reality. Um, but if you haven't watched uh, this show that's been running for a little while called The Chosen, I would strongly encourage you to. It's actually like... 
I, I, I don't appreciate Christian media. I do appreciate The Chosen. So, like, it's that drastic in my mind. Uh, but Jackie and I were, were just watching the most recent episode that coincidentally was talking about Jesus preparing to teach the Sermon on the Mount. And we actually were going to take a look at a clip from The Chosen of where Matthew, one of his disciples, is uh, sitting with Jesus, and Jesus is asking him, like, what do you think of my notes so far? So that's where we're at. Let's go ahead and run the clip. Are there any sections that concern you? Give me your honest opinion. I know I don't have to say that, but... The whole truth. You know I won't be offended. It's... Well... Very striking, but if I do the math in terms of good news and bad, it seems like there's not a lot of good news. Anyone who looks at the woman with lust has already committed adultery. Doesn't that make everyone an adulterer? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Wouldn't that lead to an entire population of people walking around with only one eye? Oh, and this one. If anyone were to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Mm. Trees that bear bad fruit being cut down and torn into the fire. The gate is narrow and hard that leads to life. Depart from me, I never knew you. Do you realize how heavily laden your sermon is with these kinds of ominous pronouncements? I haven't even named half of them. It's a manifesto, Matthew. I'm not here to be sentimental and soothing. I'm here to start a revolution. Well. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That isn't exactly... I said revolution, not revolt. I'm talking about a radical shift. Did you think I was just going to come here and say, hey, everyone, just uh, keep doing what you've been doing for the last thousand years since it's been going so great? So we see like this picture of Jesus where he's not just coming like he literally just said, and it's so comical to see the like humanity side of Jesus going like, did you think I was just going to say like, keep going? It's fantastic. Of course, of course, he's like, he, he's a revolutionary. He's starting a revolution. He's starting a new way to be human. And what this like this clip communicates is beautiful in its essence because Jesus did not come to like permit or allow or just encourage his people to be a little bit different. He came to bring like good news that is also hard news. He came to bring a, a change, not just to like the external behavior, but a change that confronts the depths of our heart. Because at the center of this revolution that is following Jesus is the person of Jesus, which is why we desire to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the things that Jesus did. But the byproduct of abiding in Jesus is not primarily changed behavior. The byproduct is a changed heart. Jesus is about a new kingdom that he has inaugurated on earth, and one day will bring to fullness. And Jesus is saying that the way of the kingdom is not just about no longer committing adultery or no longer committing murder from last week, that the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom is about the sort of stuff that happens in the depths of our heart. And Jesus goes on to say, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is a hard teaching, and it's, it's hard because we have a hard time accepting it or believing it to be true. 
And this makes, no, uh, makes um, us no different than the Pharisees. Similar to like last week um, where Jesus reveals that murder comes from a deeper problem, Nick taught on murder and the deeper problem of anger in our heart. Um, Jesus is now speaking of adultery in that same sort of way. That while adultery is a problem, yes, the real problem is a deep-rooted problem of our heart. We are all created or made by God. He fashions us together, every part, every portion of us. And included in that is our sexuality. You were created in God's image, and a part of how God made you is with sexual wants and desires. In my experience of church culture, we were taught to suppress the very real, very God-given nature of our sexuality. We discussed it very little, if any at all. And we were told to read the Song of Solomons, but only when you're married. <laughs> and what happened is we ended up having a very skewed perspective or nearly no understanding from scripture at all of what it means to actually be a person who has sexual desires. So anytime anything like this comes up in our lives, pornography, masturbation, problems with sexual intimacy within our marriage, whatever it may be, the church has not been the place that we can bring these sorts of problems or questions. And the problem with that is that while the church, church is intentionally not talking about sex, the world around us won't stop talking about it. They won't stop talking about sex and sexuality. And so now our sexual norms are actually being formed more by the world than it is by God. And this is clearly not a good thing for people following the way of Jesus, or for anyone for that matter. And so Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and I want to unpack what Jesus is actually saying here. Much of the difficulty around this text is actually caught up, it's bound in the English word look. We use this word look all the time. It's synonymous the way we use it with the word see. Like, did you look at the sun during the eclipse in 2017? Or where do you look? Where do you go find your news? The word look has such a wide range of meaning, but what Jesus is saying is not did you look at the sunset or notice the wall decor, not did you look at the woman who walked by or happened to see the barista when she made your coffee. What Jesus says or what he's describing is that, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, he's describing looking in a way that means something more like did you pay attention to or did you give your eyes to? Like there is a leaning in with intent behind our eyes and thoughts and heart that are embedded in Jesus' words or use of the word look. And to be clear, what Jesus is not saying is that you lust in your heart. Hear this clearly. What Jesus is not saying is that you lust in your heart when you notice beauty. Somewhere along the lines, like we've drifted from the reality that God created good, beautiful things. That word beauty is used more to describe the Genesis account, the creation narrative, than any other word. Like this beautiful thing. And in our culture, we've taken this, these things of beauty and we've like bastardized them almost. We're not allowing ourselves to even like notice beauty in the world. And so like the way we've been conditioned is that to notice beauty is sin, and that's just, that's just not right. That's wrong. To notice beauty is an okay thing. 
It's not wrong to notice like a, a, a person who has beautiful eyes and a beautiful smile. It's not wrong to notice how beautiful a bride looks on her wedding day. It's not notice or wrong to notice any, any of those things, any of the like God-given character traits that we might see as a part of like the sexuality we are born with from God, the, the part of the sexuality God has designed us with. It's not wrong to see and notice beauty in those spaces. But what, what, what is wrong, what Jesus does say is wrong, is to take the things that we find beautiful about a person, a smile or an allure or a figure, and lean into those things with our minds and our desires to the point where we begin to, like, objectify a person. There's a difference between noticing a woman's beauty and desiring a woman's beauty for your own satisfaction. Letting your eyes linger in spaces they shouldn't or allowing your heart to move from noticing or appreciating beautiful things of the male or the female form and then like allowing our eyes to fixate on those things if even for just a second. That Jesus says that when we move from that first space of noticing to that second space of fixating, even if, again, for like a microsecond, that we, we begin to commit adultery in our heart. Jesus goes on to describe like, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. Don't do these things. Don't let adultery take root in your heart. Or as Peter describes it uh, later in Second Peter, Peter describes it as, a person's eyes being full of adultery. Um, and Dallas Willard actually translates this verse to say, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman for the purpose of desiring her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this kind of helps um, this understanding of this. And this desiring, which I would suggest is primarily sexual desires, is not limited alone to that either. Um, some see others and they desire companionship. Some see others and they desire being known intimately. And what this sort of desiring does for another does significant damage. This sort of looking at another woman or man for the purpose of desiring always ends in hurt and pain. When we begin to look with the purpose of desiring, noticing a second or third time that man walking down the road, or we stumble into clicking that questionable advertisement next to the news which heads down a rabbit trail of all the other suggestive content. Or maybe there's a companionship that is longed for or even sought after more deeply than our own spouses. What happens is we reinforce in our minds and in our hearts that our spouse is not enough for us. And with our actions and our hearts, we say that he or she is not fully what we want, that she does not satisfy our desires, that we want something in addition to her. We don't know we are saying this, and if asked, we would actually probably not even believe that. Yet our actions reveal our heart. And of course, this does a lot of damage to a woman or man whom we have promised to love. And at the deepest part of who you are, I'm sure you desire, your desire would never be to hurt or harm your spouse or to say that you're, with your actions that they are not enough. We talk about seeing our neighbors and our coworkers or even those living around us without homes. We talk about them as being image bearers of God. But we must see our spouses as image bearers too. 
And what damage are you causing your spouse, an image bearer, through your own selfish desires and lusts? What message is being told to these precious image bearers when we subtly say with our actions and with our longings, you are not enough? And when we allow lust to creep into our hearts, we cause significant hurt and damage to our spouse. Some of you sitting here may even be recipients of that hurt and damage. And I just want to say, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that your spouse may have acted or desired others in an unpleasant way that made you believe that you were not enough. That's a lie. It's not true. It's ugly and it's sin, and you have endured some of the painful consequences of your spouse's sin. God desires to bring hope and healing to those broken places. Let him. And of course, the damage does not just stay there. We damage ourselves when we, um, instead of choosing to love God and our neighbor with purity, we choose to satisfy ourselves. We create in ourselves self-indulgence, relational disconnect, and emotional hardness. And then even farther, we damage our relationship with God, believing that what he has given us in a spouse is not enough to meet our God-created desires. Our trust in him wavers, and we even begin to try and hide from him, or maybe hide parts of who we are, kind of like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And the reality as a part of this conversation is that sex and culture is dramatically changing across the landscape. It has been for some time. This is nothing new to you. But in the 60s, looking backward, we see the introduction of contraception and birth control pill, eliminating much of the risk of recreational sex. And then in the 70s comes the sexual revolution. The 80s comes with it the breakdown of the family unit and increased divorce rates. In the 90s, we see an increase in, in hookup culture along like young people. In the 2000s, we see an increase in pornography use with the like, great access of the internet. We see creation of apps like Tinder and Grindr and see the breakdown of the institution of marriage where many young people today have little desire to marry anymore. We also see less young people having sex than ever before. And while that statistic may sound like a good thing, it is largely driven by the rise of digital spaces it parallels with the decrease in actual physical relationships that are altogether mixed with like a dramatic increase of pornography to where they actually, like, like younger people no longer have the need nor desire to have relationship, like physical, actual, real relationship because it takes place across a screen. And what happens when kids, or adults for that matter, move from viewing porn to being addicted to porn, to escalating in that addiction, it results in what we call desensitiz desensitization, where it actually like, has a, a desensitizing effect on the human brain. We actually like change the way our brain is wired. And what happens is what used to pique our sexual interest just doesn't satisfy anymore. So as we change our brain, like we need more and more stimulation. And that's like where we, that's where we currently are. 
That's not even like where we're going. Where we're going is just as concerning as where we are in this moment. We see some people uh, now, like younger people, doing away with sex completely, with the creation of sex robots already on the market and sold and used across the globe. We see a resurgence of polyamory, a single person having multiple consenting relationships where this group agrees to be in relationship together. That's been increasing dramatically over the last few years, both in the Europe and the U.S., and while at the same time, culturally, with the Me Too movement in particular, we're having macro conversations around power structures and consent, while at the same time, we're allowing children to change their bodies from male to female or female to male ever before they hit puberty. As a follower of Jesus, it's such an interesting time to be alive. And the reality is that the world and culture around us will continue to push on sexual boundaries until they become normalized. And this leads us farther away from God's design for marriage, and that is what we currently see in culture and in the church. And what it does is slowly tear down God's design for sexuality. It normalizes sexual sin and behavior. And what ends up happening when we allow lust or that second look into our hearts is that all of these things that God has created a person to be are reduced down for the purpose of objectification based on a few external factors. And when we allow ourselves to lust, we see people as objects to meet our sexual desires more than we see anything else. And while at the very same time, lust tears down the individual who participates causing them to not be a person of, it causes them to not be a person of self-control who relentlessly gives into their instincts and sexual desires. Jesus says this because his teaching is meant to deeply challenge and humble us. Jesus redefines adultery. It is almost as if we wished we could go back to just not committing adultery. But Jesus shows adultery to not be about an action, but ultimately about a distrust of God that takes place in our hearts. Because the reality is, when the sexual desires of our hearts move beyond their God-given limits, we declare that we do not trust God anymore. We must remember that God does not place boundaries on us for our harm, but for our good. Covenantal marriage between a man and a woman is the only container strong enough to contain the power of sex and intimacy. That is how God designed it time and time again, and it has been proven to be true. And again, it is not for the sake of condemnation, but it is for the sake of flourishing as a part of God's way of life. The University of Chicago reports that highly religious couples who are committed in a monogamous relationship year after year have the best sex. And more often than any other, more often than any other people. So don't let those sitcoms fool you guys, okay? Um, this is God's vision for sexual flourishing, that our bodies do not participate in adultery, that our hands do not participate in adultery, that our eyes do not participate in adultery, and that our hearts do not participate in adultery. And this leads to flourishing. And let's return to the connection in this text 
between adultery and the next section where Jesus provides a brief statement on divorce. I want to read it again. Matthew 5, 31, 32. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As we come to this section, we must see that it's not by accident that Jesus like pairs these things together, that he places one next to the other. But to understand what's really happening here, we have to understand the deeper context of what Jesus is saying, what he's actually getting after. And unfortunately for this passage, it's one of four passages that speak on divorce and remarriage and adultery in the Gospels from Jesus' mouth, and it's the shortest of the four mentions in the Gospels, which also in some ways makes teaching about it for the first time the most difficult because we have so little to work with. Um, but this, uh, th this mention by Matthew, this mention by Jesus gets further expounded in Matthew 19. So if you want to take a look at that on your own, please feel free to do so. I would encourage you to do so. But what, I, what we want to understand for today when we take a look at this passage is when we come to this passage, we come, we come to this text with very Western eyes and often very specific questions. We come to this passage, we, we look up, like we even Google, like what does Jesus say about divorce when our friends are on the verge of getting divorced? Or maybe they already are divorced, or maybe us ourselves are considering divorce. And then we come with that like baked in question to Jesus's three sentences and try to get an understanding. And we want to be very clear that today Jesus is not answering the question in this text that you are likely bringing to it. Jesus is responding to a completely different type of question that is growing in popularity, that is normal in his day. When the words, whoever divorces his wife, are used by Jesus, when he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce, when this is said by Jesus to us, they are like English words on a page. It's a statement about divorce. But to any Jewish listener at that time that had the, the Torah memorized, because that's what you did as a Jewish child, you memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, when Jesus uttered these words in their mind's eye, they would have immediately gone to Deuteronomy 24. That's what Jesus is quoting here. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, because he finds something indecent about her, mental mark right there, indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. That's what Jesus is quoting. So Jesus is pulling in this well-understood line from Deuteronomy, which at first seems unfair to the woman, and, and, and to the modern ear, it is, but, but it's actually meant to provide protection to a woman in that time. But that's like a whole nother teaching that we don't have time for today. But this text from Deuteronomy matters because Jesus directly quotes it. And this is a hot button issue when Jesus is walking around in that day. A generation before Jesus, there was a rabbi who's a teacher of the law. His name was Halal. And this teacher had much influence in Jewish culture, much influence in Jewish teaching during that time. You see, prior to Halal, Deuteronomy 24 
was by and large agreed upon to mean that a man could divorce his wife for sexual immorality. But Halal took the meaning of the words, something indecent about her, and changed that meaning from what it had always meant to mean something more along the lines of when you are dissatisfied with her. So Halal's interpretation of the verse changed Israel from a culture where it was difficult to get a divorce because to do so you had to demonstrate sexual immorality or harm, neglect, or some sort of abandonment to a council of people to what and with Halal's interpretation came to be defined as like an any cause divorce. Under Halal's teaching, you could be divorced for any cause. And under Halal's teaching, men began to divorce their wives for any cause. This teaching is much lighter, much easier than the difficult teaching that lived there before. And so men began to divorce their wives because they no longer liked their cooking or their beauty no longer pleased them, or they watched like too much Netflix, or whatever, like whatever the thing was in their day. Their culture moved from, an e from like a hard divorce culture to an easy divorce culture, much like ours is today. And that, when Jesus says this, that is what Jesus is speaking to in Matthew 5. He's not making an all-encompassing statement or pronouncement on divorce and remarriage, but he's addressing the theological controversy of their day, specifically from Deuteronomy 24. And both claims of adultery in the Matthew 5 passage are, again, they're not all-encompassing statements about divorce. But what I believe Jesus is saying is about what is going on at a heart level when a person breaks their vows and gets divorced without biblical reason when people are practicing divorce for any cause. To understand God's heart here, we must um, start where God reveals his heart for marriage. So um, if you want to turn with me to Genesis 2, we're going to take a look there real quick. That's the preface. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> We're going to read um, verses 23 through 25. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And building on this in Matthew 19, verse 6, or um, I think it's Mark, it's also somewhere in Mark, they say the same thing, Jesus builds on this, um, where um, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Catch that. It doesn't say man cannot separate. It says, let no man separate. Now, as mentioned earlier, a key way to thwart the advancement of God's kingdom is for Satan to attack the things that God has ordained. And Satan, since the very beginning, has been trying to destroy marriages and the purpose of marriage. Whether married or not, you know this to be true. We need grit for marriage. We need to fight for our marriages. We need to protect our marriages. As Dr. Brian Lawrence says, oneness is not the default mechanism 
of marriage. Can I get an amen? (laughs) The way of Jesus is not about passive participation in the life of the kingdom, but it's about a life that is full of purpose and meaning and heart. It's a life that flourishes. It's a marriage that flourishes. Our easy divorce culture is no different than that of Halal's day. It's driven by self-interest and the way of least resistance. A common theme that we often hear in today's age after an argument or maybe after the reality of 10 years of marriage and you are not satisfied, as though maybe you thought you would be, is that um, you deserve better, right? You deserve to be happy. You deserve to be fulfilled in the ways that you ever dreamed of as a little boy or girl. And we bring our Hollywood Cinderella stories into our marriage and we leave out that marriage is hard and it takes grit and it takes practice and it takes choosing to love time and time and time again. And so what do we, like, what do, we do with all this? What do we do with Jesus' teaching on adultery beginning in the heart? What do we do with um, this instruction from Jesus? The first thing we do as a new, like, Jesus community is we take this radical idea of faithfulness, not just with body, but with heart. We, we take that seriously. We take that as, like, following Jesus means radical faithfulness of my heart to Jesus first and my spouse second, and we convince to bring pleasure and not harm. We believe again in God's robust vision for marriage that has always been and will always be the picture of a man and woman committed together, committed to each other in a covenant with God. Not just in the high moments or the happy moments of life, but the like deep down, nitty-gritty, dark and ugly moments of life. That husband and wife become one flesh and that we seek to function as one flesh whose primary desire is not like self-satisfaction, but is kingdom vision of glorifying God through marriage. You see, marriage, like family in the Scriptures, whether that be literal family or spiritual family, is meant to be an agent that advances God's kingdom. May we have vision to see our marriages like that again. We must learn to cultivate again, like Adam and Eve in the garden. We must cultivate and care for the things God has entrusted us with. No one is going to cultivate your life or your marriage or your parenting or your discipleship to Jesus if you don't begin to participate and cultivate that yourself. And things that go uncultivated, like a garden uncared for, turns into weeds and overgrown vines and unpruned branches. It grows into chaos. And we are often surprised by this when it happens. We're surprised by the chaos that ensues when we don't take time to cultivate beauty, the things that God has given us, when we don't provide care for them in our lives. We're surprised that they don't turn out how we think they are. And if this happens, if adultery of heart or adultery happens, if divorce happens, then when we experience this, we experience the hurt and the pain of this, like, earthly side of heaven reality, 
when we experience the pain of things not going how God designed them to go. We come to God with our hurt and our pain and our wrongdoing, and we repent. We confess the brokenness that we've experienced experienced and participated in, and we ask God and the others around us that we've hurt for forgiveness. And we trust in Jesus' way of life more than the way that we could craft on our own. We take the, like, dark and broken spaces of our heart, because, again, Jesus is all about the heart. And we allow the work of the Spirit and hopefully a community of people around us to, like, wade into those places that Jesus would bring hope and healing that he would resurrect things from the dead, even the things that are inside of us. Let's pray. Jesus, um, thank you for your words. We know that they're not easy to hear, um, but we thank you that, that you love us enough to care for our hearts, not just our actions that you love us enough to like get down to the nitty-gritty roots of who we are. And God, we pray um, that you would help us. None of us, Lord, are outside of the temptation of lust. We pray, Father, that we would put our trust in you, that we would trust you, Lord, and trust that what you have given us is not just enough, but it is more than enough. Lord, and may we believe that deep down in our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would, um, God, that you would bring healing in this room. It would be foolish to not acknowledge that there are people in this room hurting because of the sin of adultery and especially of the sin of lusting after that. So, God, we pray for healing. We pray, God, our God, the one who can restore, we pray that you would restore, that you would restore the broken things that are inside of us, that you would restore broken marriages, broken relationships, Lord. This is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves, Father. We need you, and we cry out desperately for you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for this time. Amen. Amen. One of the things we've been leaning into on Monday nights came up this last Monday again as we were praying is that one of the, like, deep heart cries of River and Way is that we would, like, we would actually uh, be, like, a church that has a culture of confession. And, and this feels really like, like heavy and ominous, and it needs to not feel that way anymore. This is a normal part of participating in the family of God, is that we confess what's going on on the inside, the ways we've been hurt, the way we've sinned. We bring those things to light that like they don't live in darkness any longer when they come to light. And so we just want to, uh, as we respond and move toward the bread and the cup, as we respond, we're going to have some people in the back that can pray for you, but it's also a beautiful space to, like, bring your confession. I'm reminded of 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer would often just like move throughout his day. And whenever he found a brother and sister in Christ, he would just be like, hey, can I confess something to you real quick? It was no like deep undoing counseling session three hours long. It was just like, I just need to get this thing that's in me out of me. And so we just want to create space for that to happen. We think this is something the spirit wants to like culminate in this community is that this is a safe place to confess the things that we fall short in. And while today's teaching was about adultery and lust, divorce, all those things like that, let's not like leave Jesus to just those spaces today. As we come to sing to Jesus, as we come to take the bread and cup, we're all in different places as we come into this room. And may the Spirit stir and minister in our hearts as He desires to like heal us and bring hope again and again and again. So let's lean into that as we respond in singing to Jesus, as we confess, as we have others pray for us again in the back if you would like prayer. And then in a bit, we will come up and lead us in communion as we take the bread and cup together.